we'll work it out. So, um, this first building block I want to put into place by um, wrestling through a, a magazine article I read this week. I follow this magazine, and they kind of post different stuff about the church and culture and different things that are happening in the world. And this week they did a story about a job posting that went up in Colorado for a lead pastor position. And uh, so it was interesting. I promise I wasn't looking at it. I found out about it through the magazine. No one worry. I wasn't looking at job postings. All is well, okay? I just want to be clear about that. But they were talking about this on a podcast, and they were talking about it in the magazine. And uh, this job posting, if we're not going to see it up here, there, there's a slide, but it's okay. Um, I'll kind of paraphrase. Basically, it kind of sounds like this. You know, every week we go to churches where we sing songs that Chris Tomlin wrote, and the worship team plays a Chris Tomlin song and changes just a little bit, putting in about 10% of their own style and flavor, and we sing his song. Our concept is, what if we had a preacher who did the same thing with maybe a Craig Groeschel or an Andy Stanley or somebody else's sermon? preaching word for word the same messages that someone else is already giving with maybe about 10% of their own seasoning on top, and occasionally maybe your own worked in there as well. And the job posting is basically we want someone to come in and share all of the good sermons that are being given by good preachers all over the country, given word for word out of your mouth. So we need a dynamic speaker who can communicate what other dynamic speakers are already saying, and that is the concept for this job. And so they're talking through in the magazine, is this even legal, is this plagiarism, hey, there it is, Woo. good work, gentlemen, nice job, all right, and I would have read that, you can catch up. Um, basically the same concept, right? And here's the question, this, this job posting goes on a little further, there's more details if you look at the whole thing, and they kind of talk about this, um, this picture of, of what it would look like, because there are all these places around the country where there's communities growing and expanding, and, and these churches that are really excited, and they're growing, and they're doing amazing things, because they have incredible speakers who we all like to listen to, and we all like to, to see the books that they put out, and we like to read them, and we like to hear the words they speak. I listen to some of those guys myself every once in a while, and we're, they're thinking, our community wants to come to the churches, but it's just flat. It's kind of stale. We need some dynamic speakers like those guys. And instead of trying to find the next Andy Stanley, how about we just find the guy who can give the Andy Stanley sermon? <laughs> right? But here's the thing that kind of bothers me, in, in addition to is this plagiarism and all the other problems that come along with all of this mess. We've kind of created this position this position, the preacher, the speaker, the, the lead pastor, we've created this position in our minds and in our culture to be kind of a, an elevated and esteemed position. We have, whether it be back in the day with men like by the name of Edwards or Spurgeon or Billy Graham or the Craig Groeschels, the Andy Stanleys, I could go on and on and name men that we greatly respect because of the sermons they've preached, because of the leadership that they presented, because of the things they accomplished. We can all kind of think of those people that we highly respect and lift up. And man, if they say it, whew, I'm in. Like, I'm following every word that they say because I trust and respect those guys. And it makes me a little nervous when I start to think about that, especially stepping into that role myself. Whew, the pressure of what it means to serve in that role, the expectation of what it means for everybody to be listening to your words and hanging on them. And so as we look at building blocks, as we talk about the first 
building block? Where do we go from here? Taking that first step, I wanted to talk about this role of biblical leadership. And I want to look at scripture and a few things scripture has to say about leadership and about how God intended for his people to be led through other people this morning. Because I think it's extremely important for us to get off on the right foot of who I am and who I'm not. Before we dive in, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. So if you want to go ahead and flip there, that's great. You can, we'll get to that in just a second. But before we dive into God's word, I would ask you just to bow your heads with me for just a moment for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that you are perfect. That you walked a blameless life in this world, facing so many trials and are so trustworthy and so faithful to your promises. And though we have proven ourselves this morning that mistakes happen and, and things just don't always go according to plan and we fall at different times, Father, you're still good and you're still faithful. And so this morning, I just pray that as we dive into your word, that it wouldn't be about me and my bumbling words. And it wouldn't be about any of us and our preconceived understandings of what your word says that we would surrender our hearts to you and hear your word for what it is, that we would hear exactly what you want to speak into our hearts regardless of what I say this morning. I love you, and I just pray that you would transform us and change us this morning. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So, 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to go ahead and actually start there. Originally, I was going to talk about something else, but we'll come back to it in just a minute. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 8. There's a lot of interesting things that are going on here. Samuel is... Um, is this man who is a, a really significant leader. He, God has appointed him and called him to this position. He's um, this man who has grown up and learned in the church and is, and is really um, God's messenger in a lot of ways to the people in this moment, okay? And in this particular passage, he has appointed his sons to be judges, and that hasn't gone well. They've done things that were wrong in the sight of God. They've, they've made just a terrible mess out of things, and the people are frustrated, okay? And they come to Samuel, and I'm going to start in verse 6. So if you want to follow along with me, verse 6 is where we're going to start. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people... This is the problem with that new bumper. There we go. Listen to what the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and his horses, and they will run in front of the chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons and war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, he will take the best of your field and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and his attendants. Your men servants and your maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. 
He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king, or for, or for the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to your town. Now here's the thing. This picture is kind of sad in this moment because Samuel's trying to be this mediator. He's trying to go back and forth between the people and what they are asking for and God and what God's heart and desire is. And he's, he's going to God and saying they're calling for a king. And I, I just feel this sense of brokenness in God's heart and in his voice in this passage. So I've been trying to be their king since I got them out of Egypt. Since I pulled them and rescued them out of Egypt, I've been trying to be their king, and they just continue to reject me. And we look back specifically to that moment. How has God been working through leaders and through his people and, and leading the people up to this point? I think it's good to start with this passage and then think back and look. In and before Egypt, God had just spoken. Like in the, in the beginning, in the garden, God walks hand in hand with Adam and Eve, right? There is no sin to separate them. They're in perfect relationship. They're walking face to face in perfect relationship in the garden. And yet sin creates that divide and now there's brokenness in the relationship and now we can't stand in God's presence in the same sort of way and so here we've got these leaders that come up Noah is God clearly communicates with Noah build an ark God clearly communicates with Abraham go to this new land that I'm going to give you and I'm going to create a great nation out of you I know you don't have any kids but I promise I'll give them to you and I will fulfill this promise through you and your family and he continues to speak and work through the life of Isaac and Jacob. We even see uh, some figure wrestling with Jacob and encountering him in a special and unique way. And we know God is continuing to communicate with these men, bringing forth promise and giving vision for a future. But it's in Exodus chapter 3 where we get this kind of different encounter with God. The burning bush and Moses. Moses is tending to some flocks. He walks into this space and finds this bush that is on fire, but yet not being burned. It's it's covered in flame, but it's not being consumed. And he kind of steps in to investigate, and a voice calls out to him, you're on holy ground, take off your sandals, don't come any closer. Moses is in God's presence, his power is being revealed, and God is speaking to him. And he does something different than just give a promise. He gives a specific calling to Moses. You are going to lead my people out of Egypt. You are going to go before Pharaoh, and you are going to intercede on their behalf. You are going to step into this situation and kind of be the in-between, and you're going to go present yourself before Pharaoh and stand up for them. Moses puts up a bit of a fight, doesn't really like the sound of this idea for good reason. It sounds a little intimidating, a little scary. He makes every excuse in the book as to why he should not be the guy in this role, but God continues to tell him, I'll be with you. I'll give him miraculous signs of this staff that turns to a snake. I'll give him miraculous signs of the, the hand that comes out leprous and goes back in and is healed. Ultimately, the people continue to listen because not only do they see these wonders, but they see the ten plagues that continue to affect Egypt, but not them. And so the people are not sure how they feel about Moses, and he's getting extra work heaped on them throughout this whole scenario. They're following, they're listening, and whenever God actually does set them free, they follow 
until they get to the Red Sea, and they panic, and they say, what have you done? You just brought us out here so Pharaoh could chase us down and kill us all until the Red Sea parts, right? They cross over on dry ground and watch the sea crash back in over Pharaoh and his armies and his chariots. And only 10 minutes later, it feels like, the people still go, that was great and all. I mean, that was cool. But I'm hungry. Like, I feel like it's kind of like the road trip with the kids. Hey, are you looking out the window right now? Do you see what we're driving past and all the amazing things that are happening right outside your window? But we want to eat. We want to use the bathroom. Like, it's our basic needs that consume us, right? And so here they are in the desert wandering, and they're, go- they're not even wandering yet. They're not even punished yet, and they're already complaining and griping. Well, we don't have anything to eat. And God provides manna, and we know how the story kind of progresses, hopefully. And if you don't, I encourage you to check it out in Exodus. But this progression continues as Moses goes up to the mountain, and he's spending time in God's presence, and he's being given the law and the instruction. There's so much happening in terms of God spending time directly with Moses. And Moses wants to spend time in God's full presence, and God's protecting him, saying, you can't handle my full presence. I'll give you glimpses. And those glimpses leave Moses walking back down the mountain radiating, like to the point where when the people see him, they are scared and ask him to cover his face because God's presence is resting so heavily on him, he is just intimidating and overwhelming, and it's scary to them. They know that the mountain is a place where God's presence is resting. This pillar of fire and pillar of cloud is leading them. And yet they're still grumbling and complaining about the most basic things. They're still arguing and fighting amongst each other. And Moses is trying to deal with the squabbles and the quarrels that are happening amongst them. And Exodus 18, his wise father-in-law Jethro steps in and says, Listen, Moses, you can't do this by yourself. Like, you can't handle all of the problems of this community by yourself. You have to raise up some other leaders. Appoint some men that you trust. Let them help take some of the lesser situations, some of the problems that aren't as heavy, and you stick with the ones that are really troublesome and continue to build up men who can help you in this effort. And so he does. In fact, he continues to build men up, not just in the effort to take care of the needs of the people, but he continues to build up this other leader named Joshua, right? And eventually the people get in trouble, and they're not going to be able to enter the promised land. They have to wait 40 years, and Moses isn't actually going to get to go in because of their lack of faith, because of the way they sent in the spies and they didn't trust God to deliver the Canaanites into their hands, they've had to wait and they've had to wonder and they've had to just sit and think about how they didn't trust God in that moment. But Joshua was one of the men who said, we can take him. We got this. God's got this. And if he's with us, we'll take this place. Moses continues to invest in him. and He hands over kind of this leadership role to Joshua as he steps away. And Joshua takes command, he's listening to God, he's continuing to meet just like Moses taught him to do in the tent of meeting. He's continuing to go spend time in God's presence, seeking after God's will. And we know he's seeking after God's will when they get into the promised land, after they've crossed the river, because the first battle they come to, Jericho, these massive walls, this huge city, they're, they're sending in spies, they're trying to scout out the land, they're saying, what's the best way to attack this city? And Joshua comes back with God's plan. We're going to march in circles and blow horns. It's one of those moments where you know that he has to be listening to God because no one makes that up just for fun because they know what's going to happen. If that is the plan, people are going to look at you and they're going to say, oh, wow, yeah, we're hungry. We've been wandering out here for a really long time, and that's your plan to take this city? 
They would have been throwing him out, tied up, said, we're done with this guy, let's move on. But God is working through these people, he's working through this man, and they, war- they walk around the city, they march around the city, they blow their horns, and the walls come down. And once again, they see God at work, and he hands this territory over to them, and they start divvying up the land, and they each find their places. And they've got this law that was handed down to Moses that sets up this structure of Levites being priests and taking care of their spiritual needs, offering sacrifices for atonement. They're offering all of these specific sacrifices for different things. And how are the Levites provided for as the land's being divvied up? They're provided for by sticking to the plan, continuing to serve the people through this priestly duty of sacrifices, and they are allowed to eat of the leftovers of the sacrifices. They're allowed to eat of the grain offerings and the burnt offerings. They're provided for in this sort of way, and these men are focused and dedicated on the spiritual well-being of the people. Not on their structure and their government and their leadership, but they continue to meet the spiritual needs. And as time goes on, we see the book of Judges follows the book of Joshua, right? And Judges seems like a little confusing thing because it's just like one weird story after another that we learn about. But, like, they're just all kind of odd. Like, they're the ones that kids kind of giggle about, like when they stick a knife in a guy and he loses the knife because the guy's just a big guy and he can't get the knife out. And the kids kind of go, that's a funny story. It's just a weird book of a lot of different events. But if we look at it carefully, what's going on is there are all of these enemies that are pressing in. They've established themselves in the promised land, but they haven't really fully caught this picture of God's leadership in the way that I think he desired for them to do. He clearly says so here in 1 Samuel. He says, even since Egypt, they've never really put their trust in me as their king. And so God has to raise up judges, people who will step in and intervene, one of my favorites of which is Gideon. Gideon, the, the kind of the runt of the litter as he describes it in his own family, who is the weakest family, the least considered family in this tribe, and this tribe is the least considered amongst all the tribes, we're kind of like the lowest of the low of the low in this place, and I'm hiding out in the threshing floor when God comes to speak to me and says, hey, you're going to go lead my army against the Midianites, whose camels are so many you can't count them. Oh, and by the way, that army of 33,000 you have, cut it down to 10. You know what? That's still not enough. How about 300? Just so that you can't boast at the end of the day that you accomplished anything, I'm going to make the weakest of the weak the leader. I'm going to give him hardly no army at all, and I'm going to lead my people to victory. God is setting this precedent for how he desires for his people to be led. And here we are at this place where they're just no longer satisfied. We want to be like everybody else. We want a system where there's a king in place and a government in place and a system where we can understand and know we're going to follow. And so here they are saying, we want a king. We all know how we feel about leaders sometimes. Like leaders are the people who we can cheer on when they do something we like. And we can say, that's awesome. They did a great job and they took the pressure off me and they got control of it and they're in charge. Like they said, I want, I want a king who will go out and fight my battles. I want a king who will establish the system of government that will just kind of take care of my needs. I want a king who will take care of the dirty business for me. And I'll cheer him on when he's doing great. But when he's not, I'll probably complain and gripe and and be frustrated and, and suffer through this kingdom and this oppression. Because we saw how this plays out. The next leader, the very first appointed king is Saul. 
And the scripture right there in the next passage talks about Saul, this guy who is a head taller than everybody else, who's just strong and handsome. He's like the guy on the cover of GQ. He is the man everybody thinks is just wonderful. He's got this appearance that everybody loves. And here he is. He is the one who's made king. And he does okay for a while. But he starts to become consumed, just as God understood that this role, how it would play out, what it would lead to. This, this role starts to consume him, and he starts to feel the pressure and the need to be the beloved king. He feels the need to keep everybody's approval. He feels the need to do everything right. But he's ultimately trying to hold on to his own title more than he is to actually do what God's called him to. And we see this as God is frustrated with him and appoints David, and David starts to step up and become popular because he took down the giant, right? People start to love him. He's winning battles and putting his faith in God and trusting him, and God's blessing him and accomplishing so many cool things through him, and Saul becomes jealous, insecure, frustrated. And he starts to hold on to his title and to the point of, well, I'm willing to kill David for this, and I might even take my own son out in the process of trying to get to David. And there's so much brokenness that comes into this situation. But David is the man who's described as kind of the shepherd boy who no one would have expected to be king because God's not looking at the outward appearance as to what's important. He's looking at the heart. And David is described as a man after God's own heart. And so this is the king that does well. But even David eventually sends his men off to fight and he stays back by himself and he spends some time on the rooftop and catches a glimpse of this girl. And falls in a moment of weakness whenever he's a little too comfortable in his role. And his son Solomon has great wisdom. A man who would ask for great wisdom and do so much good for the kingdom. Establish the temple. Really create a place for God's presence to rest. But you see the people start to put their comfort and their trust in this, these walls. And in this temple and this established structure. And they start to rely on it. And regardless of how wise Solomon was. He started to take his eyes off and. His sons eventually take over, and they really bring about a mess and create a civil war and divide the kingdom. And from then on, we see this roller coaster ride of terrible king after terrible king with an occasional like bright spot where someone sees God's word and turns their heart back to him and tears down all the pagan temples and all of the, the places of worship. And I present all of this, and I know it's a lot, and I know there's a lot to think about. But I present all this and talk about all this because God understands that when it's left to us, when we're to put our trust in a person to lead us, when we turn our eyes to someone specific and say, we trust you, we want to follow you, we want to go wherever you want to go, eventually that starts to get to people. It's actually kind of funny where you can find wisdom. Um, you never know where you're going to find it. And There's this kid a while back ago who's on the radio. He sings songs, and I found a couple of them quite obnoxious to the point where my daughter... Um, knew that even younger, and she's DeFore uh, through and through. So she takes after her dad and her grandfather. She's a little ornery. Um, and so she thought it was fun to get me a birthday card that when you open it up sings one of these annoying songs <laughs> by Justin Bieber called Baby Baby, right? But like I said, it's kind of funny. You go from a place where you're like really annoyed with this kid who's got the cutesy hair that he flips in front of his face and the annoying song, Baby, Baby, to seeing what's going on in his life now. And I don't know if you've heard some of this stuff, but, like, this guy is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but he's really wrestling with his faith. And he's really outspoken about the fact he's trying to figure out who God is and what role he plays in his life. And 
like I said, you find wisdom in unique places. And let's look at this quote recently Justin Bieber gave in an article. That's smaller than I thought it was, sorry. I just want to get to a place where I, I just want people to know humans aren't meant to be worshipped. He continued, we just, we're just not. So when a human is being worshipped, this is dangerous. I'm going to read it back here. That's, that's a long ways away. That's dangerous because it does nothing but give you pride. And I feel like the fans, they got to understand, you can love me, you can be passionate about me, you can fantasize, you can do whatever you want, Bieber said, but it's a finicky thing when you start putting your trust in me. And I've seen certain people just break down. You see, I think there's a lot of leaders in our country who feel like people are putting their trust in them to lead the church where it needs to go. People are looking to them every Sunday to step up and present the greatest message. They're looking to them to be perfect, and leaders are falling left and right. We're hearing more fallout this week out of Willow Creek. We're hearing more fallout left and right from pastors across our country who have this extreme pressure because we've lifted this role up on a pedestal, and the pastor has to have it all together. I've watched guys that I know personally just crumbling in insecurity because they feel like they have to have all the answers. And they walk into a meeting needing to be the smartest guy in the room and they're not listening to the wisdom of the other leaders that have been raised up with them. I've seen other leaders because they feel like all the pressure is on them to be lifted up to be perfect, just crumble or hold on to it with such pride or rise above this place where they feel like they need accountability because they're the leader and they're in a position of authority and they who needs the accountability but that's not what god designed at all it's not what god intended at all in fact he warned against it saying don't get caught up in that you need to realize that i'm your king not someone else there's a there's another part to that quote let's look at here i would really suggest to people don't put your faith in me because i'm going to disappoint you every time yeah it's scary but I want them to know that I'm, going to be, I'm not going to be able to solve their problems. I'm not that higher power. I'll never be. I'm not perfect. I've made so many mistakes. There's this place where we find ourselves, where we could put our trust in a leader who will fail us. And I'm just telling you, I told you last week, I am a person, and I will make mistakes, and I will fail, and I will fall on my face. I've stumbled over my words. I've gone, I can't read that from a distance, and it's okay. That doesn't make me a sinful person. It just makes me silly and look goofy up here, <laughs> which I'm perfectly okay with, as long as you are. No, I mean, I'm okay either way. Because if I ever start to take myself so seriously that I can't make a mistake up here, if I ever start to put myself in such a place where I just can't be vulnerable and real, we want to create such a safe place for the outside world to come in where we know you're a sinful mess and we want to help you. We want to provide safe space, but sometimes we don't provide safe space for one another, especially for our leaders, because leaders have to be perfect. James talks about leaders in chapter 3. He says we're held more accountable for our words. And he says specifically we have to be very careful about what we speak. But what's really interesting is he goes on right after he says that to kind of almost feels like an offhanded joke saying because no one is going to be able to speak perfectly unless they walk a blameless life he kind of ultimately says no one is going to speak complete truth without mistake unless they live a blameless life and the only person we know who ever lived a blameless life was jesus christ himself so even in saying that those of us who stand up and share god's word are held to a, a higher sense of accountability he recognizes that it's still not a position that's 
expected to be perfect. Philippians 2 says, Jesus came in the form of a human to walk amongst us, to go through what we go through because he didn't expect equality with God as something to be grasped. Jesus came and set this tone for leadership. He was humble. He, he knelt down and he sat next to a woman at the well who he knew was a sinful mess, and he talked to her, and he asked her for water, and he broke the social norms to enter into a discussion. He went to tax collectors' houses, people who had completely ripped off other people and hurt so many people in an effort to restore them and bring about a sense of direction for their lives. And all the while he's doing it, he brings 12 men along, just like Moses, who's raising up other leaders. But Jesus would also, Jesus, the Son of God, would also find himself We'd find him in so many moments getting away to quiet places to pray, to get away from the distractions, to go find time with his father. Because he knew spending time humbled in God's presence was the only way he could lead. Even up to the moment of his death where he's in the garden praying, God, not my will but yours. There's this example that's set in humility. The son of God humbles himself, taking on the very nature of a person, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Complete humility and surrender. At the same time, community. I have to bring 12 along because I'm eventually going to leave these men in charge. And Peter is scared to death whenever Jesus says this. He's like, no, you can't go. They can't take you. They can't kill you. This is a terrible idea. No, you're supposed to come and lead. But Jesus always knew that his leadership wasn't about him staying around and him being the one who was present as a king. He still wanted to hand off tasks and directions and things for the people to do. So it doesn't mean that we all just follow God and no one has any responsibility. There's still something we've been called to do. Moses was still called out of that bush to go and lead. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's leading in a way where you're not the only one. You're raising up people around you and you're building up people's confidence in such a way that you're working yourself out of a job and out of a role so that you're not indispensable. You are absolutely and must be dispensable at any given moment because as I always told these guys I work with in this convention I used to do, if one of us gets hit by a bus tomorrow, who's going to know how to do the, to the role and the task that we do? And, and, and sadly, too often, we just think, i got to do this because people depend on me. And we don't ever train someone up to follow and to lead and to do the things we're doing. And so humility is important, community is important, but the most important piece that all of these men realize is they can accomplish nothing outside of the will of God. If we're not trusting God as we walk around that city, it won't fall. If we're not trusting God with the 300 people we've been entrusted with, we won't conquer the Midianites. If we're not trusting him and looking for his vision and his direction, we won't find anything that we're looking for. Which leads me to the last passage I want to read for you this morning. Acts chapter 4. You can look there if you want, but there's going to be a couple of verses here on the screen in just a moment. So I would encourage you just to listen to some of these words here. This is a story. Peter and John, they've been preaching. They've healed this man who was crippled. Everybody's in an uprage about it. They're upset. They're frustrated. And this is what I want to leave us with today to think about. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and to John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priestly family. 
They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power and what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, who he could have done nothing without, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved. I'm not the one who saves anybody. And I'm excited to be here, and I know that there's a lot of questions about where are we headed and what's next and, and where is God going to take us, and that is 110% up to him. Because on my own, I have no ability or capability to leave anywhere. None of the elders have the ability or the capability to lead anywhere without the Holy Spirit and God's leading because none of us has ever saved a single person, and none of us can be the salvation of the kingdom of God outside of him. And through the Holy Spirit, we humbly seek on our knees his direction. Through the Holy Spirit, we stand in community, humbly looking for that direction together, knowing that we can't, any one of us, do it on our own, but that we have to go together, unified as the body of Christ, with many parts who work and serve different roles and purposes, ultimately humbled in his presence, seeking only his face through his Holy Spirit. And that capstone that the builders rejected, that cornerstone that the builders rejected is the one that we have to start with. It's that first Lego block that goes into place. No other piece of the puzzle matters more than this one, that Christ alone is the leader behind which we stand. He is our king and he is our leader. And if we lose sight of that, we just lose. And so this morning, we're gonna go into prayer time and time of invitation. And I'm recognizing because I know myself, it's easy, that some of us walk through life putting our faith in a lot of things. We put our faith and our trust in our bank accounts because there's stuff there and it makes us feel comfortable and all is well and I don't have to worry too much about where things are coming from. Some of us put our trust and our confidence in other people. Some of us put our trust and our confidence in leadership and governments and different things that will fall and crumble. The only thing we can put our trust and our hope in is Jesus. And this morning, whatever it is we put our faith and our hope in, he's calling us to let go and say, kind of let go of the edge. Trust me out here in the deep water. It's a little scary, like Peter stepping out of that boat. I know you don't think you can walk on water, but I promise you, if you keep your eyes on me, you can. And he's stepping to asking us to step out of the comfort of that boat that we think we stand in, that he knows will eventually sink. And he's calling us to step out in faith to follow him completely. And so wherever you're at in that relationship this morning, I ask you that you simply wrestle with God this morning and say, where is it you're calling me? What is it I need to put my trust in? Worship team, if they're coming back up, we're going to have this time of invitation. You guys can come on up. And I'm going to ask the rest of you to stand with me because I know I've had you sitting too long. I got distracted and got excited, and that's what happens. I apologize. Because things don't always go exactly according to plan, and that's okay. But this morning, we're just going to bow our heads. And if you have never put your trust in Christ for the first time, I would love to talk to you about that because that is by far the best decision you could ever make. 
But at the same time, if you are wrestling with a bunch of different things, if you want to pray with one of us, come grab one of us. If you want to pray with somebody close to you, grab one of us and pray. If you just want to pray quietly by yourself, that's fine too. I invite you to do whatever you need to do during this time. But let's pray. Father, I trust you and I love you and I give all of my life and who I am to you. I surrender it to you. Father, there is so much precedent you've set throughout scripture for how you wanted us to be led. Not that you wanted us to follow some king or established ruler here in this place because we will all fall short. We will all fail. We will all disappoint. But Father, ultimately, you are the one who saves us. You are the one who leads us. You are the only one we can stand on. So Father, I pray that you would help us to step out of that boat and to follow you with all of our hearts. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus I pray.